there will be an intermission for 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> good afternoon. My name is John Freeman. I'm the editor of Freeman's, and it's my great pleasure to present this conversation to you on the theme of violence between the novelist and essayist uh, Colm Toybean and Aminata Forna. I want to thank um, all of you for coming here this afternoon, um, and I also want to thank uh, the, the Penn Foundation for bringing these exceptional writers um, to us. Uh, I, in my mind, I think Colm Tobin and Aminata Forna are two of the g most gifted uh, storytellers in the English language alive today. And they also happen to have been writing about the costs of, the aftermath of, and the ways that violence inscribes itself on the lives of characters and real people through their work for almost 30 years. Um, I'm going to introduce them now, and we're going to have a conversation. Um, they're going to read from their two new books briefly. Um, after the end of the conversation, I'll open it up to questions from you. I'm sure you'll have some. Um, and then at the end, I'm sure they will both be willing to, to sign books. Um, I'm, on my immediate left is Aminata Forna. She was born in, in Scotland and grew up in Sierra Leone and in boarding schools around the UK, in Iran, and elsewhere. For 10 years, uh, she was a broadcaster and journalist at the BBC, and then around 1998, um, she realized that she had not yet told and reported the major story of her own life, which was the abduction, imprisonment, and political murder of her father in the build-up to the Sierra Leone Civil War under the regime of Siaka Stevens. Um, the sto that story became her memoir, The Devil That Danced on Water, which was an, uh, an incredible book, the kind of memoir that Marquez would write had he been born in Sierra Leone. Um, beautiful, and it's told from a child's eye perspective as she's unpeeling in the first half the story of how her family unraveled and how the state uh, of Sierra Leone unraveled. And then the second half is her going back to investigate the people that were actually there uh, and participated in her father's imprisonment and covered up for what happened to him. She went on to write several novels, um, among them is The Memory of Love, which was an Orange Prize finalist. Um, the Hired Man, which uh, came out shortly before she won the Wyndham Campbell Prize. And the book that we're here to talk about um, most recently, which is uh, Happiness, which is a novel that begins in London with a fox threading its way through the, the legs of um, Londoners. Uh, and it tells the story, among other things, of a child that goes missing and the people that go looking for that child. And in telling that story, it does a wonderful thing. It reverses the gaze of who belongs to a society. Um, its main character, Attila, is a psychologist of uh, war trauma, um, and he's in London for a conference to discuss the, the aftermath of trauma. Um, to her left is Calm Tobin, who was born in Enniscorthy and is a novelist, drama, dramatist, essayist, journalist, and poet. He has been three times uh, a finalist for the Booker Prize for Blackwater Lightship, um, for his novel, The Master, which if any of you have ever read Henry James and wondered what he is like on the inside, highly recommend that. He won the Lambda Prize and The Testament of Mary, um, which began as a play and turned into a novel. Um, he won the Costa Prize for his book, Brooklyn, which was turned into a movie. He's written two books of short stories, several travelogues, including one walking along the border of Ireland um, in the wake of the Troubles, uh, a book-length study of Elizabeth Bishop, which was a finalist for the Book Critics Circle Prize, Several books of essays, the latest of which on three Irish writers and their fathers will be out this fall. And his latest novel is, is The House of Names, which is a retelling of the Greek myth of Iphigenia uh, and her murder, uh, Clytemestra and her murder. Um, it is an extraordinary story about the cycle of violence in which uh, within a few pages 
all the layers of those 2,500 um, years that stand between us and the characters are peeled back <coughs> and we are suddenly in their bodies, feeling them as they make decisions which perpetuate um, the cycle of violence, which has become one of the key texts of uh, Western civilization, as well as family life. Please join me in welcoming them here now. So I'm going to start with Aminata. Um, there's a quote in the, uh, pretty early in the book. Um, uh, Attila is remembering going to various war zones. Um, I think this is when he's in Bosnia. Um, and he says to, to himself, uh, there, was, there was no big secret to war, Attila thought. There would always be people who relished violence. All they ever needed was a leader and an opportunity if someone could unite the gang. And to begin this discussion, I'm curious if I could get both of you to talk about what you believe violence to be, as in, is it endemic to human nature, um, or is it the aberration to human nature? And why, Aminata, does Attila perhaps come from the former camp? To talk a little bit about why he... Um, I do that. think people are uh, naturally violent. Um, I think societies are born out of violence. Uh, we fight over land and resources and water and all kinds of things. A friend of mine who's a war correspondent once said to me, um, war is just armed robbery. <laughs> war is armed robbery. And it is. It's always over something. You can give it a cover story. You know, you can say it's for freedom. You can say it's for this. But essentially, it's, it's armed robbery. And... Um, I, most human societies are born out of that. And one of the things that would happen to me after I wrote The Devil That Danced on the Water and um, I, I wrote a couple of books based around the Sierra Leone conflict and then I decided that I was interested in civil conflict elsewhere, specifically civil conflict, and I wrote The Hard Man and set it in Croatia, which was an entirely contemporaneous war. Um, and... Uh, Many reviewers and interviewers kept saying, whoa, wow, why Croatia? And to me, it was so obvious, right? They were exactly contemporaneous, but they also shared almost identical features. And most people couldn't get over the fact that one was in Africa and one was in Europe, uh, and that seemed to, to them to be the most divergent feature. But actually, if you looked at the countries, they were the same size, they had extremely similar economies, agrarian economies, uh, roughly the same population size, same geographical size. But crucially, they had uh, 25 years of dictatorship, followed by an economic downturn, uh, followed by the rise of a charismatic psychopath. So... <laughs> oh, sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and actually, you might be interested in the, the, the crucial difference I found between the two wars was, you know, Sierra Leone was a really slow burn. It took a long time for that war to get off the ground. People had been disenfranchised and impoverished for so long. It was amazing it happened, hadn't happened earlier, and really the touch paper was lit by Liberia. In... Croatia, like that, right, like that. And I couldn't figure it out until the same war correspondent said to me, well, you know, he said the reason it all went up so fast in the former Yugoslavia was because they were a hunting society and every man had a gun and every man knew how to use it. And, of course, in Sierra Leone we were farmers, so it took that much longer. And both wars were then characterised by the instrument of war. So in Sierra Leone, it was the, the cutlass, which people used to... The scythe, people used to cut grass. They then used to cut off limbs. Uh, and 
the former Yugoslavia became a sniper's war. Uh, so availability of weapons is your last element. Mm. Uh, but uh, So I, I do feel all the time I was talking about those two wars, particularly Sierra Leone, interviewers would often say to me, but, you know, naturally good people. There was this phrase, naturally good people. And I wondered who these naturally good people were because I hadn't met them. Uh, <laughs> 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 And I said, well, actually... You are all exceptions. (laughs) You know, when you're talking about naturally good, you're really talking about untested people. And I saw what happened in the war in Sierra Leone. I saw who did what and who went on what side. And it wasn't rocket science. It just wasn't rocket science. People pretty much defaulted to character in terms of the choices they made. So, yes, I, I do believe all those people exist in a society. And I think it just requires... Um, you know, it just requires certain elements to come up, to rise at the same time for us, a society like this, to find itself in the same position. Mm. Colm, your grandfather was in the IRA and fought in the 1916 revolution. Um, your father, I think, was a teacher. Uh, I wonder in what way the sort of stories about the uses of political violence or the necessity for it filtered down to you growing up um, in Ireland when you did and, and what that said to you about whether or not people were um, inherently capable of violence and killing. Um, my father's brother, um, who lived until 1995, um, was involved um, in the War of Independence in Ireland um, as an insurgent and was later imprisoned and was on a hunger strike in the Irish Civil War. And um, because my father died when I was pretty young, my, I was very close to my uncle, who was very conservative. I think he's alone, perhaps, in having been... He was excommunicated by the Pope for his terrorist activities in the 20s and decorated by the Pope for his work for the Catholic Church in the 1980s. But he was, he was an immensely quiet and conservative man. Um, you know, he, he, didn't, he, liked, he didn't like any form of disorder, especially childlike disorder, teenage disorder, or young man disorder. And, um, you know, he read the same paper every day, took the same walk every day for many years, went to the same bar every evening for the same single drink every evening. He was a man of habits, and um, the only thing about him was that it was said, my aunt said, I never believed it, but my aunt said, my mother didn't believe it either, but my aunt said that he didn't like cabbage because cabbage (laughs) had affected, uh, because his stomach had been so damaged on hunger strike that cabbage did something, the juices in the cabbage did something to it. But I looked at him carefully. I always thought he just didn't like cabbage. But I suppose uh, the point I'm making is that, um, I mean, I'm, I, mean I'm just, I, I marked a passage um, in your book, I'm in it, where it says, there would always be people who relished violence. All they ever needed was a leader and an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So that, in, in his case, a leader and an opportunity came. But, but there was also a cause, and, uh, and there was an emotion involved. But I'm thinking also about the, the event that took place before us here was a Catalan event. And it would be so easy. I heard all the Catalan voices outside to think, oh, my God, I should go up to them to say that you, you must be in you know, this war you're having. But this war they're, having, they're not having because Carlos Puigdemont and their other leaders decided to run a nonviolent political campaign for the independence of Catalonia. I noticed the Basques yesterday apologized for their entire terrorist campaign, for every single thing they did. The Catalans did something else. They just didn't do one. (laughs) And so that leader, I mean, the opportunity was there, has been there over the last year. Things have been very heated in Barcelona. 
but the leaders constantly say we are a non-violent movement. We will not get involved in car bombs. We will not import arms. The port of Barcelona is a very porous place. You could very easily bring in guns from anywhere. We're not doing it. We're just not doing it, and we're not doing it. So that idea of the leadership, of leadership in, in a certain moment, and I think that leadership was simply not available in Croatia at that moment, nor in Serbia for that mm. matter. And that was everybody it, at that time did their worst. Mm. But there are moments when you see people doing their best. For example, in Ireland in the 20th century, twice peace broke out. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, the, and the second time it was due to... Um, Independence, but the, sorry, the first time, but the second time it was due to the fact that it, at the right moment, people such as John Hume um, were in place, and indeed someone who often gets a bad name, Tony Blair, who did want to see this problem solved and solved in a way that would mean that children growing up would never have to go through the experience again. George Mitchell came from here, Bill Clinton was involved, so that at a certain moment, um, the opportunity goes the other way. And it is as though leadership remains quite an important matter, the speeches made, the sort of way you can stir up emotion so easily in a, in a, in a climate where people, are, where people feel excluded or where people feel that there's something to be gained, as you say. Leadership, words said, can actually matter. Words, speeches, mm. um, the radio, things like that can matter. And since uh, I've... We're, since we're at a culture festival, Colm, I want to come back to you with a, a question uh, about the role of culture in, in if not um, creating a context for nonviolence, but then in curating the way our response to violence and the, the way that novelists participate in that, the way that artists participate in that. I'm thinking of, uh, there's a scene in the South um, where one of your characters, is, she's a painter, and, and she had in mind a number of pictures from an exib- exhibition of World War I painting in which nature itself was the subject, the battlefield as mutation, as perversity, in which violence was done to the natural order, to birds and insects. It was just such a sense of the world and its disorder she wanted for paintings. And, and it, it occurred to me that, um, that the Greeks uh, didn't go in for that kind of um, corrective device to the, to the worst instincts of human nature, that they were quite the opposite, that they put all of our worst instincts directly forward into their plays and their art. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, the myth on which this book is, is built and how it's different, perhaps, from the way that we narrate and, and narrativize our lives as humans in novels and plays today. I, I think the theatre was partly used as a way of, of getting that system, uh, that violence that you're, that you're talking about, and dramatising it so that it can be seen, not simply as, as a set of individual acts, but as a spiral, um, um, as a way in which when one thing happens, revenge becomes the necessity, or seems to become the necessity. And watching somebody um, in that context... Um, beginning as innocent and ending as filled, their, ha- their hands covered in blood, and seeing how easily that can be managed in an hour, an hour and a half, two hours in the theatre. Someone at the opening of House of Names, for example, Clytemnestra is on her way to, essentially on her way to the wedding of her daughter. By the end of the book, she has, she has become monstrous, and that she is organising really the most ast- astonishing acts of violence and I, I think what we get from the Greeks is, is the idea of how easily this can happen within a single personality mm. and also how the drama surrounding this is a necessary drama 
for us to perform in books and plays and poems so that it's, and so that it's known and, and in memoirs, I mean, so that it's known, so that people can fully see what it comes to and what it means. It doesn't mean that we want to get the, um, what's it called, the Nobel Peace Prize for writing a story or a novel. I, I, mean, I mean, there are other people out there doing the actual work in the, what's called the field. But I mean in, in the creation of images. And, and this is important. I was on a plane, and I, I was walking down to go to the bathroom, and every single person, men and women, were, were watching a violent video. And I thought, God, I think of all the love stories that could, you know, could they not put on something really, really nice, like, you know, a film about Julia Child with Merle Streep or something? Is there not? Like, <laughs> like, is there, like, I, I know it's late at night, like, I know, but there's so many nice films, like Lauren Bacall or, you know, Humphrey Burke. There's so many old films. But every single one, and I just walked really slowly looking at each screen, and all of them, people were shooting each other, threatening each other, attacking each other. I thought these innocent people on a plane throughout the night. And I thought, either this is good for them or bad for them. And my conclusion as I came back and walked the other way and could see their faces was, it's both. That they need it, that they need it as a form almost of catharsis, of working out something that they won't do. It's not as though all these people are going to get off the plane and are attacking the people in the airport. So they're, going to, they're, going to, they're going to get taxis, they're going to get buses and go where they're going. But that in one way, it was an example of them finding something dark in themselves that was going to entertain them. But the other side of it was they were going to watch something being enacted that they would never do, mm. that somehow or other would, would keep it at bay as though there was a sort of magic about watching it that would keep you from doing it. But th- there's a space between those two that I'm not sure about whether they would, you know, whether it was good for them or bad mm. for them. I think it might have been in the middle somewhere. <laughs> you know, there's a book called The Psychology of Dictatorship by an Iranian psychologist called Ali Mokhadam. And he argues that essentially in any society there are just enough charismatic sociopaths, right? There are a lot of them. Any number of people could become those kinds of leaders. And he says it's not... We shouldn't really be looking at the leaders. This is actually the opposite of what you were saying a moment ago. We shouldn't be looking at the leader. We should be looking at the population. Because the population at some point decides what kind of leader they want and whether they want someone to lead them into violence or lead them away from violence. So it is. It's, there's a symbiosis um, as Colin was speaking, Aminata, it occurred to me that even though all of your books are in some ways about uh, the aftermath of trauma and, and violence, they're also all love stories, um, if you will. And you, you find a connection between the two of them, um, including in, in um, uh, the novel about the Civil War where you send a white man into Sierra Leone and inflict upon him everything which has happened to the country, including <laughs> love. Yes. Um, but but uh, as Colm was speaking about the role, the kind of um, psychodramatic role of theater and how it sort of allows us, this, you know, perhaps catharsis through watching something we would not do but could do, um, I was thinking a little bit about the role of international observers and how they, in some ways, fun, they, they act as that role um, in the uh, geopolitical sphere, as in they are sent in from the West, usually to countries else uh, in the East or in, in Africa, which have known conflict, they report on it. And in, um, in that novel, there's this wonderful conversation where Adrian, the character, who's the, the white character who's gone to Sierra Leone, um, is having a conversation with another man who says, what were you told had happened here before you came? Ethnic violence, tribal violence, blacks killing each other, senseless violence, 
most of the people who write those things never leave their hotel room. They're too afraid. <laughs> and drama does seem to have some function in a way that it can um, get us to think morally about these things. But do you, do you think to some degree the observer function in, um, in the aid industry and is in... Is very reductionist. Is reductionist? Yeah. I mean, to, to find oneself characterized in that way, you know... Uh, um, most people in the West didn't really know much about Sierra Leone, and then when they did know something about Sierra Leone, it was the worst possible thing. And um, it, was an, it was an odd experience for me. I mean, first of all, we didn't see ourselves as violent people. Um, we thought that the Liberians were violent people, and we thought they were violent because they were more or less American, and Americans were violent um, so that's why the war was there, and we didn't think it would come to us. So when it came to us, and of course, you know, there was that violence in the society, and it, and it, it sparked like that. Um, but, but, you know, we were taken aback by our own ability to be violent. But then what you realise is that in between all of this, life is going on. So I would be in London, and I was living in the States and living in London during the war, and um, but and then I would at some point so at the end of the war I spent a lot of time uh, going I had to go back and help my family really so towards the last two years of the war I was going in and out quite a lot and I realised that my friends in Britain only had this single representation of the country which is what they saw on the news and they didn't realise that life was going on that we had had ten years of war but in that time thousands of millions of babies had been born. You know, people had married, people had made love, people had buried their grandparents, people had planted crops. I mean, life was still going on. And um, so, uh, I mean, international observers and aid people are a kind of funny bunch anyway, to be honest. They're drawn to it, and they're, <laughs> they're drawn to it. They're kind of buzz junkies. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, they're they're not the best witnesses, really. They're not very sophisticated witnesses. But let me just tell you this. Uh, So finding oneself reduced to that was odd anyway, which is what propelled me into writing, into writing stories of of greater complexity about the experience of war, both what comes before, which was, of course, you know, they were were straightforward and long-term political reasons for the war in Sierra Leone. It wasn't, it wasn't actually in any way an ethnic conflict. That was what was completely different from the former Yugoslavia. It wasn't in any way an, an ethnic conflict. There were straightforward, complex political reasons, um, but there could be, you know, the, the, the lines that could be followed. Uh, there was a war and there was an aftermath to it. And, um, you know, we, we've pretty, it, it's been quite hard to break out of that. I'll tell you a little story. I, um, I uh, used to, when I was going in and out at the end of the war, one of the things I used to do was teach creative writing through the British Council. And they would give me a space and, and you know, people would sign up for the course. And I suppose that when I started, I thought we were, it was going to be... I don't think writing is cathartic, don't get me wrong. I think it can drive you crazy. But... Um, I, I suppose I imagined that most of my students would want to write about their experience of the conflict, right? that we would sit down and, and we would write about, we would talk about, we would write about the things that had happened. And do you know what they all wrote? Hmm. They wrote love stories. 
They all wrote love stories. <laughs> and so I realized that, that, that they wanted to get away from it too. They wanted to remember the other, the mm. other side of life. And, um, as Aminata was speaking, I, one of my favorite books of yours column is Story of the Night, um, which is, a, a, among other things, a love story set sort of in the thick of the dirty war in Argentina. Um, uh, and it, it is, it's sort of a political ni- novel in disguise uh, of, a, of a love story. And Aminata was speaking um, when she was writing The Hired Man about the things, the differences and similarities she experienced when going to Croatia to write that novel and do some research for it. And I'm curious, when you were writing um, that book, uh, if there were any, uh, if, if you had to put aside similarities and differences to the political situation in Ireland uh, that, you, that, that you saw while researching that novel, or did you just kind of set aside research and try to imagine most of it? Um, it began, this is a novel set in the 1980s. Um, it's, it's in the aftermath, aftermath um, sorry, of, yeah. um, of the Dirty War. But what happened was that in 1985, um, I went to Buenos Aires and I worked as a correspondent at the trial. In other words, I sat every day at the trial of Galtieri and the other generals. What they decided to do was not to put the actual torturers on trial, but put the actual bosses, put the generals on trial. About eight or ten of them were put on trial, and everyone who survived the torture, everyone who survived being arrested, everyone who was not disappeared, turned up to give evidence. And the effort was made to connect that to them. And it was really an astonishing um, introduction to a society because I'd never been in Buenos Aires before. And as I was, for example, on, at the weekend, if I were on a street, I would know the street name by evidence given at the trial during the week. And some of the accounts of the, you know, uh, um, the rape, of the mass murder, of the throwing of the bodies into the Atlantic, of this, this, this ostensibly civilized Argentina, this, this, you know, this great producer of wealth, had actually just turned in on its young um, in a war that some people still thought was necessary in order to cleanse the country of Marxism. My concern was then that I could not see a way for a novelist to intervene in this, that I saw it as being work for journalists. We need to know the truth. We need to know how many. We need to know where. We need to know who. And we need to know how things were done or how this arose. But the aftermath interested me. Being in Buenos Aires, and I went back, I went back quite a lot in the second half of the, um, of the 1980s. And um, one stage I went to write the story of Maradona, the soccer player. And I asked every soccer player about the disappearances. And they said, ah! They have a special way the Pope does it too. And, um, <laughs> you know, why don't you? And they say, you know, it had nothing to do with me. I didn't know anyone who disappeared, and I'm not sure the numbers. And you went, realize this society is in denial. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of aftermath, this grayness, this whole sense of, of, the, 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 of the main protagonist who really, really thinks he didn't know although later when he, re- he remembered, there was an image that has never left my mind, which one person gave <clears> in the trial was, in order to prove that torture had happened in a certain police station, he said uh, they didn't have enough electricity for the cattle prods they were using on the body, on, 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 on people, so they would attach them to cars, and you would hear the police cars revving through the night mm-hmm. as they were using them, meaning the, that the whole barrio was awake because the car, these cars with no driver in them was revving with these... <laughs> And I thought that was an image of a city in denial of the, of the noise, but not, you know, we didn't know, but we just knew that. Well, would that not be enough? You know, so that I, I, things like that came into my head as a way of trying to describe 
not what it was like during the time of the disappearances, during the, you know, the, the, during the red-hot period, but in the aftermath. Uh, and so, so, so the, the novel came out of that. I also thought that the sort of silence surrounding um, the disappearances seemed to me to connect absolutely to the silence surrounding being gay. In other words, I kept meeting people in Buenos Aires who said, uh, no one knows I'm gay. I mean, things have really changed there now. No one knows I'm gay. No one will ever know I'm gay. I will never tell anyone. Um, I, you know, I can tell you because you're a foreigner, you'll be going home. But my family won't know. My friends don't know. My wife will, in the, of the future will not know. And um, I just found that there was a connection between those sort of silences. Mm. Um, yeah, and a lot of your books seem to write out of various forms of silence and create um, characters and, and context. I mean, not as, as um, Colm was speaking, I was thinking a lot of uh, Ancestor Stones, um, which is the story of, of four Sierra Leone women um, who are in some ways carrying the story of their country in their own stories, mm. which, um, because they're not uh, part of official history, they're, they're individual history, um, they are, until told... Uh, in a novel, in your case, um, they're, they're basically silence. And I wonder if, if your desire to write that as your first novel was related at all to your experience as a journalist, um, because your, your job officially as a journalist is to, is to uncover yeah, silences which, which, which need to be... Um, yes, I mean, I, I also write about the silence of people who should know. The Memory of Love was very much about the silence... And when I wrote, and it, it's, we have a parallel experience because when I wrote The Devil That Danced on the Water, it was very important that we, that I stuck with fact, right? You know, that we uncovered the lies and we told the story in the plainest terms with as many facts as we possibly could. And then it was later, like you, I turned to uh, fiction in order to talk about the complicity and the silence. And I had found that when I was writing The Devil That Danced on the Water, which was during the war, and I, I'd gone back to research, people were so shocked by what had happened that they were disarmingly honest with me. A few years later, everyone had started finding their cover story, right? They'd started finding their cover story and they started dissembling about what exactly their role in the whole thing was. You know, they'd started, I suppose, finding a way to explain those car engines revving at night and how they hadn't heard it or they hadn't been part of it or they didn't know about it. Um, with Ancestor Stones, which had come before that, I, uh, well, I, when I was writing The Devil That Danced on the Water, what happened was this. Uh, the event in The Devil That Danced on the Water, I was very young. You know, I was 11 when my dad was killed, so... I was really having to trawl back a long way with some really quite slight memories. You know, they were really the memories of a, ch of a very young child. So at one point, what I was doing was I created these three chronologies. One was, first of all, I started with my life, everything I could remember, and I, tried to, and I put it into date order, which wasn't that hard because my... We moved country a lot. We were always fleeing and coming back, and, and my parents were multiply married, so uh, I could always remember, OK, it was that parent with this parent then it must have been this year and if I was in this place then it was there so I, I was putting them all into date order and then a little while later I did a chronology of my father's life and then a little while later all in the same process I did a chronology of the history of both Leone and Britain but Leone principally and I realized that when I put all the three chronologies on top of each other 
that everything that had happened in my life had been dictated by everything that happened in my father's life and everything that happened in his life had been dictated by everything that happened in the country. And then you could extrapolate out of there, you know, decisions that were made in the British Parliament. I mean, I, now I often say to people, I wouldn't exist but for the Berlin Conference, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, the, the Berlin Conference of, what, 1884, you know, basically created me. Uh, I mean, did other things too, but I think their primary objective was probably at some point <laughs> to... Uh, but, you know, there's no way my parents would have met if that conference hadn't taken place. So uh, when I wrote The Ancestor Stones, it was really about trying to show how uh, we think our lives aren't... We, we, may not, we may choose to be not political or say that we're not political. Um, we may think our lives are not affected by macro decisions taking place on a, on, a, on a bigger stage, but actually even the smallest aspects of our lives can be dictated by decisions that are taken thousands of miles away. Hmm. Colm, I wonder, um, when you were uh, on, the, on the road around Ireland writing Bad Blood, um, Aminata spoke just now about the kind of window in which people kind of get their stories straight, and if you want to see a fascinating morphology of the real-time display of lies. Um, mm-hmm. read, read this memoir, because people are lying to her in front of her and then correcting their lies with more lies. It's sort of like watching the news now. <laughs> uh, but in, in your case, Colm, you were, you were walking around Ireland, and, and it's, it's almost like you're walking. It's like you're returning history to the scale of, of not, a, not a horse or a car, but a, but a foot. And I, I wonder if that was on purpose, and if you chose that time period on purpose. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, in the, it was the, one of the worst years of the Troubles, and um, I came from the Republic of Ireland, and certain things were being done and felt in the Republic of Ireland that I felt uneasy about. And I felt that actually we, we, we need to know more than the news. Pe- people become so, you know, used to the news. Another, another soldier killed, another policeman killed, another Catholic killed. And you just go, okay, actually, why don't I just go and see it? And, um, and the one that I really felt, I mean, it was where I really almost got in, into, into crusader mode was where at the very end of the journey... Um, in a place called Bespera, I knocked on, on the door of a man who's still alive um, called Alan Black. He's in his 70s now. I'm a Catholic from the south. He's a Protestant from the north. There's no reason why he should take me into his house. There's a particular reason why he shouldn't, in that um, 10 years earlier, in 1976, January 1976, he was the only survivor or the only Protestant survivor of what's called the Kingsville Massacre. 12 men coming home from work. Uh, um, 11 Protestants, one Catholic. The, the paramilitaries say the one Catholic stand aside. They presume he's to be shot, but he isn't. He's told to run. They, they open fire on the 11 Protestants. Uh, they kill 10 of them, um, and one survives. So in this town, there's one Catholic still alive who really is a nervous wreck. I mean, I've never seen anyone as traumatised. Just came to the door and just said, ah, no, 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 I can't talk to you. No, 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 no. And um, but Alan Black said to me, look, I, I don't want to talk to you, but I, have a, I've just, I did talk once about it, and I have it on a video. And just come in and watch it, and then you can go, and you'll know all about it. But he hadn't watched it before, and the two of us ended up watching it. And it was, it was really, I felt, you know, you know, this was being done in the name of freedom, of a united Ireland, of, of whatever is being done in the name of. He was talking about watching the children of his friends, of the ten friends who, who were murdered, growing up now without fathers, seeing the signs that they were like their fathers in some way or other in this very small town. 
and just, just, just his own account of what he was through, because I think he had ten bullet wounds. And uh, also that evening he did something. He, he, he just said, can we go out for a walk? Can we go somewhere else? He was teaching his teenage son how to drive. That ordinary moment in life, and the kid was, he was doing it all wrong. And the father was saying, no, no, you've got to do it like this. And it was that, suddenly he, le- he left me to feel that he wasn't just a survivor. He wasn't just a victim. But I saw, in a way, what might not have been had a bullet gone one, mm. one millimetre in another direction. This scene would not be occurring. This kid would be learning to drive in a driving school. You know? And it made me, really, when the book came out, uh, you know, when I did stuff on the radio and stuff, like saying, we really uh, like, just think about each killing, not as, uh, as, a, mm. as statistics, but as one by one, or as each survivor and that, um, that, that we really have to, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, I, I mean, just for one place, obviously Britain has to do it, Northern Ireland has to do it, but, but since I was, I was from the Republic of Ireland, I was talking to my community saying, we really, really have to rethink our response to this, because if we are in any way helping it, or if we're in any way doing anything to make it continue, we really, really have to reconsider, and we, we, we have to consider, reconsider indeed our own nationalism our own sense of identity, if that is necessary. Um, but this has to end. And we have to do whatever we can to end it. And, um, you know, it, it took another, I mean, it, it took another decade or more. We, we, we had a claim, a constitutional claim on Northern Ireland, saying it was actually our territory. But in the end, there was a referendum on that. And we, we actually don't have that claim anymore, which was a, a big moment to show people in Northern Ireland, we don't actually want your territory. We want stability on the island. But it, it took a long time for that. But I, I just, I'll never forget that evening um, uh, how much light there was in him, what a wise person he was. Although if I called him wise, he would laugh now because he wasn't trying to be wise, but he was kind, he'd survived, and he was ordinary. And maybe that was enough to give me a sense of how valuable his life was. Mm. I think that's also true here. I mean, in terms of the school shootings, that the same thing is being replayed. We see it on the news, another school shooting, another this and another that. And actually, if you looked at each individual life in the way that you're describing, um, the country might take a different position on what is deemed to be an acceptable level of violence and loss of life. Well, I think what's so powerful about the movement right now that's been driven in large part by the students is you typically have heard from politicians, police, uh, uh, sometimes parents, but we almost never have heard so directly and continuously from the students themselves who are saying very basic things like, I shouldn't have to be shot at school. Yeah, yeah. And this is where I go, go to learn. And, I, you know, I want to shift gears here a tiny bit because we've been speaking a lot about political violence and state-sponsored violence or violence as inflicted upon the body by weapons. Um, or, uh, but obviously that's not the only form of violence. There's the violence of silence, which you alluded to to some degree, but there's the violence of poverty, which you've written about. You wrote a book about the Irish potato famine. Um, Brooklyn is in some ways a story of a woman fleeing the violence of you know, what is her, her country is experiencing. And you've written these kinds of things, um, and you write them into to happiness as well. And I, I wonder, as novelists uh, or storytellers, how you feel, um, not your role, or I don't want to m- make it a self-conscious decision, but... To what degree is your, is your ultimate fealty to 
expanding the field of violence when you when you write uh, so that you can in some ways animate uh, as you column said like a an everyday life I, if I had to say anything about all the characters maybe Mary Magdalene aside that you've written of recently they're all everyday people um, it? <laughs> well, well um, I think that um, um, if you um, are setting a novel um, as happiness is set in contemporary London now. Maybe you have more to say about this. I think it's impossible not to see how did Theresa May become Prime Minister? Because she was Home Secretary. Why was she such a popular Home Secretary among mm-hmm. the Tories? Because she was hardline. What does hardline mean? Hardline means being hard on immigrants, being tough on um, for, for example, she, she was the one who said that someone who had dual nationality could lose the British nationality if they didn't, as it were. Uh, you know, the idea of losing your nationality. Um, and, and, but, but also that there is a climate, which is certainly here, and we read about here all the time, of people being sent back across borders, of family, families being divided. But I think this is something that is... is on the rise in London in one way, but as, um, you, you know, uh, as ordinary people don't necessarily pay that much attention to it. And it, maybe it's part of the job of, of, of a book yeah, to actually say, to, no, no, hold on a minute. But also to see those connections. I mean, that's what I try to do is connect the dots between. So um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with what's happened in Britain with the Windrush generation, how uh, kids who arrived in Britain in the 1950s and 60s from uh, West Indian countries who were British citizens. I mean, they had British passports, which most most, uh, domestic British people don't realise. They weren't Jamaican. They weren't uh, from Barbados. They were British citizens. Um, Well, they arrived in Britain in in those days, and I think now even when you're very young, you travel on your parents' passport. So they came in, and now they're having their nationality challenged. Many have been deported back to countries that they last saw when they were two years old. They've had their jobs taken away. They've had their health... uh, They've had access to the health services taken away. And it has been a national scandal. And an MP called David Lammy stood up and gave an outstanding speech in the House of Commons, tracing exactly that. You know, it was Theresa May who started all of this when she was Home Secretary. And, um, and he uses the phrase mm. about right-wing rhetoric. And he says, when you lie down with dogs, you get fleas. You know, and all of this, it, it, it's, it is all contingent on each other. It didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, when I was in Britain launching Happiness recently, because in Happiness what happens is that there's a... A, a woman is accused of being um, an illegal immigrant and loses her house. And in fact, she's in the country completely legally, but she's denounced. And of course, you know, this is chiming with what's going on. And I was on the radio and somebody said to me, you know, did you write this in response to Brexit? And I said, well, no, because uh, Brexit, you know, I was, I was already at least halfway through the book by the time Brexit happens. It takes a long time to write a book. But I said, those of us of colour could see it coming. We've been saying this for 10 years, and you've been, you know, the decent, pleasant, 
white liberal friends of mine have been saying, oh, no, 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 no. And then, boof, Brexit was a moment when we all saw it in, in absolute clarity. But it has been, there's been a continuum. And I think that is what novels do. And that's what I try to do, is join the dots of that continuum mm. to see where things begin and, and where ultimately they end. See, I think there's a way that the novel can uniquely handle this. One of the issues in Britain is that, that you can go, for example, to the graduation, as I do because I'm involved with the, with the University of Liverpool, and you can see this generation emerging as doctors, as accountants, as lawyers, with their parents... It, it is a tremendously multicultural society. There, there is an extraordinary amount of confidence, um, especially in the north of England, but also in London, in, with, with people who have, who have simply succeeded, who have gone through the university system. So it would be very easy for anyone to think, no, no, everything's fine, there isn't actually a problem. Or someone to think, no, no, this is a disaster, this is the most racist country <laughs> in the world. But the novel works in the space in between. Mm. And uh, I mean, in your book, that, that whole sense of the area around Waterloo, of, the, <laughs> of just the ways in which a community builds so easily, and people know what's mm. going on, and that you can actually dramatise this in a way that I don't think a journalist could manage. Manage, no. Or, um, and the sort of trauma. interiority yeah. and, yeah. Well, in some ways, the in-between space that you're speaking of is, is brought to life in Aminata's novel through the animal life in the city who are being um, addressed, spoken of, tried to control with the same language that all of us will recognize as being applied to immigrants right now. And um, I wonder if you could read a tiny bit from the novel because there's the scene which, um, when you read it, it's just simply uh, a fox hunt, but... Um, if you see it in the context of Britain today in the novel, it, it also is giving off sparks of a, lot, of a lot more. Let me read a couple of pages. I'll, uh, let me just talk you into the scene, I think. Um, uh, so Jean is a wildlife biologist, and she's there uh, studying urban foxes. Here in America, of course, it's coyotes, which is what she has <laughs> cut her teeth on. Uh, but she's gone to Britain to, to, to do a research project. Um, she gets drawn into the sphere of Attila, who, uh, the, psych- the psychiatrist from Ghana. Uh, John's told you about him. He's there to give a speech. But at one point, they're looking for a child who's gone missing. And because Jean and her group of um, volunteers know the streets so well... Uh, they have put themselves forward to help him try to find this child. So they have been out on a search for the child, which has, in fact, been unsuccessful. And as they're walking back, she hears... um, She hears uh, the baying of dogs, and she sees a fox running out of a park, of a small park on, on the Old Kent Road. So she follows the sound... The creak of trees and the hiss of the wind replaced the sounds from the road. Flashlights switched through the darkness. People were spotlighting in the park. Hunting with spotlights was illegal in a good many places in the US. Here they called it lamping, and men had been at it for centuries. Poachers often lamped for rabbits and hares. Now lamping had come to the city. In the country they used lurchers for their speed and gentle mouths. The dogs could take a dazzled rabbit before the animal even knew it and bring, bring it back to their master to wring its neck. In the city, they hunted foxes for sport. And in the city, they used not lurchers, but Staffordshire bull terriers, whose powerful jaws were capable of locking onto their prey, of tearing a small animal in two. Jean was familiar with the park, but darkness altered its dimensions. Where now was the path? 
Ahead of her, a trash can metamorphosized, metamorphosed into the shape of a crouching man and back again. Jean felt in her coat pocket for her own flashlight and switched it on. The further behind she left the street, the denser grew the dark. The wind whipped her hair across her face. Somewhere in the distance, a siren sounded. Grass gave way to gravel. Ahead, she saw two men coming towards her. Jean stopped. When they reached her, the men stopped too. They wore dark jackets and woolen beanies, and that these men were two of the lampers was beyond doubt. Now they stood before her in silent confrontation. A knowledge hung in the air, and nobody seemed about to pretend otherwise. Jean, who had no cover story she could think of, made to move past them, but the men blocked her path. Who's this? Jean's voice was steady as she said, Excuse me, please. Why, what have you done? said one of the men. The other laughed mirthlessly. You don't want to go there. I don't know where you think I'm going, but if you'll excuse me... Yeah, but you don't want to go there, said the same voice. I'm just telling you. I heard sounds. Oh, that's just the foxes. They're all at it this time of year. Sex mad. She moved and the men moved with her. The second man spoke. Listen, love, you're not in Kansas anymore, so why don't you fuck off home? Go on, get your ruby slippers and piss off. Behind the two men, lights flashed. Momentarily, the wind died, and at the same time, the dog started up again. Jean dived past and started to run. She sprinted, fueled by adrenaline and cold, heavily because she couldn't see where she was placing her feet. The wind seemed to be coming from everywhere. Shadows crossed in and out of the beams of the flashlight. The dogs had been loosed. She could almost hear the vibration of the ground caused by their galloping feet. Furiously, she urged herself on. One of the men behind her shouted, his voice coming from a distance. Ahead of her, the flashlights disappeared and all was blackness. Then came a scrambling and a snarling and a thud and roll of bodies. An animal screamed. Jean stopped. For a few seconds, she stood breathing hard. She could hear nothing from the two men. She turned off her flashlight, but held on to it tightly in her right hand. She began to walk towards the gate of the park, now some distance away. A hundred yards from the gate, and she ran into the two men again. Can't leave it there. <laughs> um. There's a lot of ways, to, uh, directions to go with, with that scene, but I, I'm, I'm curious, um, I, you know more about animal life than I think almost any novelist that I know. Um, <laughs> uh, if you read her memoir, you discover that from a very young age, Aminata wanted to be a veterinarian, and one of my favorite pieces of hers is by, about the last veterinarian in Sierra Leone. Um, what, animal life is violent. I mean, most yes. animals die painfully and horribly. Um, but you're writing about the kind of in-between animals that live on the edges of human society. What, you studied foxes, deer, and coyote, and I, I'm curious what you learned about the way that we interact with them says about us and control and, and violence. Um, <clears throat> well, it, it's all about control, I think, actually. Our relationship with wildlife, human relationship with wildlife, uh, the more I thought about it, the more I examined attitudes to urban wildlife which are very conflicted. Um, I mean, I'm presumably you... Do, do you all live in New York? No, uh, no. So <laughs> you have... You know, where I now live in, in Virginia, in Arlington, it's deer. 
Um, also coyote. I know that there are coyote around, but I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> I'm not telling my neighbours. I mean, I've been out tracking in the morning and found their paw prints. But one of my neighbours has a cat that's always out, and I just thought, I just can't raise this because she's going to go wild. But, I mean, the coyote are the least of the problems because the coyote don't really care very much. In Arlington, the, the, the animal that gets people really wound up is deer. And I... I cannot, for the life of me, figure out how you could hate a doe. I just, I can't, you know. I mean, I know that you eat your nice plants and stuff, but it's just not that big a deal. And where we lived the first time, the first house we had in Arlington, we had this really, really shitty backyard. I mean, nothing grew there. It was very, very shaded. And so we, there was a, a doe and her two fawns, and they would come into the garden, and we had a trampoline. Um, and so we had this sort of clearance space under it, and she would use it as a sunshade. She would lie there with her fawns. And I found this perfectly charming, and we, were, we would be companionable. Maybe there was far away as that table there. I could sit there and read, and they would be... She'd have a look at me, but they'd be fine. Well, the woman who lived in the house at the bottom, uh, below, in a cul-de-sac, she became enraged by this doe. And she didn't... I know that she didn't like me, my son, or the fact that, you know... <laughs> any of us, particularly the fact we let the doe use the trampoline as a sunshade. So she asked me, could I build a wall? Well, put up a fence. Could I put up a fence at the bottom of my garden? And I said, well, it's not my house. You'd have to ask the owners... So she asked the owners, and they lived in Rwanda, and they really didn't give a damn. So <laughs> they said no. <laughs> so she put up the fence. Well, what do you think happened? Deer walked round it. Of course they walked round the fence, and they continued to cross her lawn in a completely unacceptable manner. So she then she asked people on either side, would they also build this fence? Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. So then they, they both say no. One of them, in fact, they, they grew lovely hosta and the, the deer ate all the hosta, but they also didn't care that much. So then she builds a fence this side, then she builds a fence this side. She builds 70 foot of fence. And I, and I just thought to her, you, got, you just have got to calm down about this. And you know, this is something you can't control. You can't control wildlife, and you've just got to let this go. You know, the world, things are the way they are. But also the fact is that with deer, we're on their land, right? You know, it's because it's the spread of, of suburbia. The difference with, with deer and coyote and foxes, a coyote and foxes moved into the urban areas, but they moved in, why? Because we're such a bunch of slobs that we leave our food on the pavements, on the, as you call, sidewalks, um, you know, we have... It's fast food, right? Fast food is the biggest single reason that coyotes and foxes are in the city. So these things are interconnected. You know, they're, 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 these things are created by decisions that we have made. So we have to do, number one, two things. We have to own those decisions, right? We've got to own our own part in, in the, uh, you know, in the, in, in the pattern. We've got to own our own... Uh, uh, role in it, but we also have to accept that not everything can be controlled. And the thing about coyotes and the thing about foxes is, the more you try to eliminate them, the far you know they are the most uh, resilient creatures on earth. There is nothing like a coyote. You kill it, another one will take its place. You start wiping them out, they will hyperbreed. 
right? Do you know that in... Sorry, I'm going to have to stop because I can mm. talk about it for a very long time. <laughs> but do you know that if you, in Chicago and in Boston, you're never more than 200 yards from a coyote? Yeah. I worked with these animal bio, with wildlife biologists and they told me that, but you'd never see them. Oh, it's just fascinating. But anyway, yes. Mm. It, <laughs> <laughs> so, you'll have to buy the book if you want to know more. <laughs> no, I, um, I, 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 I neglected to mention when I introduced Colin that he teaches here sometimes or more often at Columbia. Um, he's also taught at the uh, University of Austin, Texas. Yeah. Um, so he spent a significant amount of time in the United States. We once ran into each other on a street corner in San Francisco. Um, so he's a, familiar with the American a, uh, animal kingdom, which is us. Um, but as you were speaking, Aminata, one of the things that I find so fascinating about our, that, about our interactions with wildlife is how often we're trying to control something when we have yet almost no control over the impulses we have control over, um, which we all know what they are. But in, in, your, in your novel, House of Names, Colin, one of the most arresting thing, scenes for me does involve an animal. It's around a dog. And these two boys, um, uh, Orestes and Leander, leave, um, leave the city because their lives are in danger because the, the killing has begun. And they, they, they shore themselves up in the house of this old woman who has a dog that protects her. And uh, they, they, they have to kill a man who's, who's nearby. And um, they, they do it, with a, I think with a rock or something. And um, uh, Leander says, I promised myself that we would kill no one else. Um, and Orestes replies, they would have killed us. They were the two men who kidnapped me. Um, and then they had to hide it from the old woman who shelters them. And later on, they come into the house, and the dog has stopped barking. And, and Orestes glances at Leander. It seems like he's grown older. And it feels like one of the things you're studying in this novel, among others, is it's just the way that we, we, we have the, the ability to control the impulse for violence and revenge and vengeance. And, and yet we... When it when we don't give into it, each time it 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 acquires a momentum. Yeah, I suppose that, that I'm placing Leander, the boy who t- who sort of leads him out of the sort of place where he's been kidnapped, as someone who's put some thought into this, versus his mother, Clytemnestra, who really hasn't. And but of course, by the end of the novel, um, Leander will have a huge gash on his face and will have led an army that has some connections to ISIS. I mean, some, there's some little, little phrases where you see, oh, my Lord, what's been going on while um, Orestes was busy plotting... I'm giving the plot away, by the way. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'll, 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 um, but, that, but that Leander has actually been forced, despite everything, to become involved, too, so that it, it is a way where almost everyone gets sucked into the violence. And... The problem, the problem with Orestes is that, is that um, in, in a contemporary novel, to, to actually build a character who's capable of murdering his own mother, you have to go very far back, and you have to show him uh, where he's not a psychopath, but, but that enough damage has been done to him that certain things have been loosened and opened up. And what he says about himself, that they realize that he is someone who could do anything, that, 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 that almost everything in him is missing, that he wasn't nurtured, you know, he wasn't looked after, he was kidnapped, he was abandoned, he witnessed violence, and then somehow or other that is all building up in him. And um, I, mean, I, I mean, I'm working in a way in the same area as you are in, the, in, in happiness and out of that idea of what happens if you traumatize somebody very young? What will happen 20 years' time is that you will get somebody 
22 traumatizing? What will that look like when they're stronger and bigger and circumstances are different? And I think that's something coming out of every... Um, uh, you know, every conflict zone is something every, everybody now has to deal with. And we, we have big words for it, and we have experts on it. But the experts have, I think, put language on something that we need language for. Isn't, isn't that right? Where, where, where we need to know what this is like. Yes, what, what, what the effect is. I mean, I think I'm, I, I've gone quite a long arc with trauma. Yesterday or the day before, I was reading from Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That... We were asked to pick a classic. I don't know, somebody said it wasn't a classic. I thought it was like a classic. It is a classic. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. Oh, I wasn't going to get into that row. But anyway. Well, I will. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a classic. Anyway, the thing, classic. the thing was that I read Goodbye to All That you know, some years ago. I've been writing about trauma for a long time. Well, violence and its effects, which may or may not be trauma. But, um, you know, and, and at the point when Robert Graves and Sigrid Fassoon were in the trenches, no one had a name for it. Uh, and then they came up with shell shock. Um, uh, but you know, these guys were shot for cowardice in the first instance, uh, men in the First World War. And so we've gradually got to understand that, you know, that if, you, if, if you endure extreme violence uh, and extreme pain and suffering, there is a that there is a, a result, right? It isn't actually always uh, the, the, the Orestes um, uh, effect. It is Orestes, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. they don't it always wind up as the boss. Yeah, they don't bomber. always wind yeah. up, and I think that's where things started to go wrong, was the idea that actually everybody turned into another kind of killer. Uh, there is such a thing as post-traumatic growth. You can endure extreme... Pain and many people who endure extreme pain go on to try to stop it happening, but stop it happening to other people, and they become more empathetic, not less empathetic. But I, but the fact is that there is an effect. You know, there's absolutely an effect. You don't come out of it unchanged, uh, and I think that's what we're still looking for the language. We, we, the, uh, the people who work in this area, the professionals, are beginning to develop a language. But the, but the language is still a very blunt instrument, isn't it? The language is still a very blunt instrument. Um, and in Happiness and in House of Names, I think it's trying to tease out uh, what there isn't. There's a process. We've begun to understand the process uh, and, and beginning to tease it out and try and find out what, find the language for it. Well, and, and it's also a different kind of causality, um, and th- that's what I, I, I also am still struck by reading House of Names, which is one of the most in- intense reading experiences I've had in the last couple of years. You can read this book in, in three or four hours, and it, but it, it feels as if you've lived you know, 40 years of violence. And, and I, I wonder if you can read a tiny bit from the book, um, perhaps early on before it all has gone awry, um, because I, I think the, the language that Colm uses uh, is so fascinating because it... It's not a language that is um, that feels like it's an, uh, uh, a prosthetic. That it's there's a thing and it's describing that thing. It feels like there's very little gap between the language and the things. Yeah, if I just read the first page, I mean, um, Clyde Ness is really rather pleased as the book opens because she's just managed to murder her husband. <laughs> and, and she's been planning this meticulously for a long time with the help of her lover Aegisthus, and now it's done, and um, she's thrown in. Um, the woman, Cassandra, that her husband has brought back from the wars, she's thrown her in and murdered her as well. So she's, she's high on the business, you know. <laughs> and, um, 
I have been acquainted with the smell of death, the sickly, sugary smell that wafted in the wind towards the rooms in this palace. It is easy for me to feel peaceful and content. I spend my morning looking at the sky and the changing light. The bird song begins to rise as the world fills with its own pleasures. And then as the day wanes, the sound too wanes and fades. I watch as the shadows lengthen. So much has slipped away, but the smell of death lingers. Maybe the smell has entered my body and been welcomed there like an old friend come to visit. The smell of fear and panic. Smell is here like the very air is here. It returns in the same way as light in the morning returns. It is my constant companion. It has put life into my eyes, eyes that grew dull with waiting but are not dull now, eyes that are alive now with brightness. I gave orders that the body should remain in the open under the sun a day or two until the sweetness gave way to stench. And I liked the flies that came, their little bodies perplexed and brave, buzzing after their feast. Upset by the continuing hunger, they felt in themselves a hunger I had come to know too and had come to appreciate. We're all hungry now. Food merely whets our appetite, it sharpens our teeth. Meat makes us ravenous for more meat, as death is ravenous for more death. Murder makes us ravenous, fills the soul with satisfaction that is fierce and then luscious enough to create a taste for further satisfaction. A knife piercing the soft flesh under the ear with intimacy and precision, and then moving across the throat as soundlessly as the sun moves across the sky, but with greater speed and zeal, and then his dark blood flowing with the same inevitable hush as dark night falls on familiar things. Um, I want to ask one final question and then open up to, to some questions from you. Uh, Colm, you have a book of essays coming in the fall, and I was rereading around um, uh, Love in a Dark Time, um, which is a book of his essays about uh, gay writers. And I was rereading your essay on, on James Baldwin, who's been very much kind of in our present eye, because in the last several years, we've all been feasting on the spectacle of violence enacted upon the, the bodies and lives of mostly um, men who are men of color who are often unarmed and who are, and, and I, I wonder, um, you know, in this book you're writing from the, the perspective of someone committing violence, um, and yet in our culture we're often looking at violence being perpetuated on the bodies of others. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your role as a writer in, in a culture which is a culture of spectacle, um, and, and what you felt coming in and out of America in, this, in these last five years, it doesn't mean that there's more police killings, more police brutality, We've just seen quite a bit more of it. Um, and what, what, what kind of pressures does that put on you as a, as a writer where, where every day on Twitter, every 37 minutes, or there is some statistics which tells us how often we can look at the body of a, a person of color, usually a man, um, being abused? I think the Black Lives Matter movement has really mattered in America. I think just, just those two were... Are those, three words as they do it, Black Lives Matter, just, just the way in which the movement has grown and, uh, and in the way the Me Too movement has done the same thing in the same period, that in, that in other words, the internet or the way in which information can spread, which we deplore so much at the time in the way false information can be spread, can also allow a mass movement not using the New York Times, not using the democratic systems where you, you, you don't run for election in, in, in this matter, but that you actually form a sort of shadow group. And that sh those shadow groups have become immensely powerful. 
Um, and if, as a novelist, it's very, very interesting. If you, for example, I have a version um, of Antigone, this on tomorrow that Lisa Dwan is going to do um, as part of Penworld Voices. And you cannot really think about the figure of Antigone now without thinking of Black Lives Matter and without thinking of Me Too and without thinking of the way in which power in America comes in two shapes, in two guises now. It comes as electoral power. It comes as White House, Congress, senators, mayors. But the other power has, has come to be in the last decade, but the last five years even more, there too, in a, in a way which I think is going to matter enormously. I haven't seen it matter yet. In other words, it isn't as though... Um, we have legislation governing the control of guns, and we don't, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has not, as it were, prevailed. But nonetheless, anyone moving in within that circle at the moment is fully alert to the fact that half the circle is taken up with a new sort of power that's not soft power. Mm. That, that, that's, that's, not, that's not just vocal power, and it's not a mass movement of, of, of the march on Washington, of Baldwin, of the time when Baldwin was alive, you could march on Washington, although that's happened. It's not the march on Washington. It's people along with their computers, gathering together in groups, setting up a sort of um, opposition to the state that, that actually, I think, from a novelist point of view, is going to be very interesting in the future. Yeah, the, the, the days when the sort of attorney general um, met with someone like James Baldwin... Uh, yeah, is, is, yeah, is yeah. I mean, Robert Kennedy meeting James Baldwin the day after, saying, "What do you guys want?" Uh, you know, and um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, um, there's a wonderful. Uh, I mean, uh, and he couldn't understand when Baldwin said to him, "This young man here, who's with us, would not fight for his country because it's, this is not his country." And Robert Kennedy had never heard anyone saying that before about America. That division is not there anymore. Everyone has heard everything now. Yeah. You know, and um, I mean, it is, it is a pity. One, one always thinks that it's about Baldwin, his early death, that he would, be, he would have been so, so important. Um, I would have loved his essay on the Obama years, to know the success and failure, the, 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 the sort of hope, deli- the hope delivered on and the hope not delivered on from the Obama years. But, but he would be really, really good on Trump. Uh, uh, Baldwin, <laughs> Baldwin would have been so good. He would have, the essay on Trump, he would have, he would have said, hey baby, I have an essay coming on this guy that's going to put an end to him for all time. I can just imagine what he would say. <laughs> uh, Aminata, you have an essay coming in the fall issues of the magazine I edit, um, which is about walking on the street as a woman of color. And, it, it, and in some ways, it does exactly what Colm is describing is how um, right now there are more women running for elective office than there have been in many, many years. And so in some ways, the, the Doppler wave of power will be experienced hopefully at the electoral polls uh, when we can vote uh, in midterms and other places. But what, what, what that's come about because the, uh, the, the lid on stories uh, of sexual abuse or, or abuse based on racial um, discrimination has been lifted off by what you were describing as social media. And one of the powers of your essay is it shows how you carried those stories with you for quite a long time. Yes, and, decades. And I mean, I, I think them. what's changed with social media is the deniability. You know, so if you're a person of color, or if you, I mean, the essay is about walking as a woman. Right, and being harassed in the street, and then there's a specificity to it, which is being a woman of colour, and how that plays out. But I'm, you know, for for many years, uh, whatever I said was denied. Right, you know, if I said this happened to me, no, it didn't. (laughs) I mean, 
It was quite extraordinary how men would deny that women were harassed on the streets. And they would somehow turn this around as though you were making it up or you were, trying, you were looking for flattery. I, I'm so gorgeous everywhere I go. You know, men decide they have to hurl insults at me. Um, so, uh, and as, you know, uh, uh, people of colour, black people, that was also being denied. Well, you imagined that. Well, that didn't really happen. Well, so now it's all on film, right? You go into Starbucks, you sit down, uh, you, you, you know, you're doing something that any white person could do, but there's a, a coercive social control which is enacted in the first place by the manageress who decides that it is her job to position you in the place in society in which she thinks you should be. Now, where I think the, the novelist and what you've done with House of Names is to look at, and what I'm interested in is looking at it from the perpetrator's point of view, right? What is it they want? So when I walk down the street and somebody hisses baby at me or some, some sexual vulgarity at me, what is it he wants? Because I don't think he thinks I'm going to say, hey, yeah, okay, you know, let's go and have a drink and maybe we could have sex. Get married and have baby. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, that is not what he wants. What he wants is to put me in my place. Right, and he's controlling the space that I can walk in, and he is telling me, you can't walk at night, you can't walk on your own, you can't walk dressed like that, you can't walk... It's about social control, and that's exactly what was going on with that manageress in, in Starbucks. It's about social control. It's not, give me, what do you call it, unconscious bias. It's not, you know. She knows what she's doing, and she knows who she's doing it to. And, um, and to me, you know, it's, it's about power, and it's about the way in which... So this essay about walking, what happened to those guys in Starbucks, all the way to, you know, when the police shoot, um, you know, a, 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 a school canteen worker in his car. It's all about layers of social control that are built up, and everyone has, is playing their part in it. If you're a guy and you hiss at a woman in the street, you know, if you're a woman and you, you report a black man for walking down your road, it's all about effecting layers of social control all the way to the police, the courts, who have the final... Uh, um, and greatest power to do that. So I'm really interested in, in, in what Colm has done in House of Names, is looking at the motivation of the perpetrator. Not so much... I mean, yes, it's great to, to see that deniability um, finally, uh, uh, you know, refuse, that you can, people can no longer say this isn't happening. It is happening, and it's now happening on film. But I think we really need to look at what's behind, what the motivating actions are. And I'm far more interested, not in the guys in Starbucks and them getting their apology. I want to know what that man addressed. What was going through her mind? When she decided to call the police because two guys were sitting in Starbucks, this to me is beyond belief. And it's also beyond belief that the police come and take them away. And hold them for six or eight hours. This, to mm. me, is also beyond belief. You just cannot say that's not a system in a system operating. Mm. So anyway, yeah, it's it's about looking. And so the essay walking is yes, it's about my experience walking, but my experience doesn't really differ from any woman in this room, you know, who, who's uh, you know who, who goes to work and, and goes out uh, and walks the streets every day. It's no different. It's trying to in interrogate exactly what is happening when those encounters take place. Mm. 
Well, listen, um, we could keep talking, uh, but I'm sure you have questions. You, you both have played your parts brilliantly, which is to make us think and to make us want to read more. So before we uh, start the questions, I just want to thank Colm Tobin and, and Amanda Taforna for this discussion. Thank you. Um, Uh, there's a question, James. Um, since you've got a kind of Supreme Court of violence here, um, <laughs> I have the privilege of being kind of advocate as your colleague. Some things are not being mentioned here. One of them is about deeply buried feuds. In Argentina, it was the conquistas. In, Argent in Ireland, it's perfectly obvious that the area along your father went back seemed to have been a perpetual state of, of deeply buried feuds. Was it? Okay. Um, I uh, want to unpack that, uh, you know, the assumption, how much, how much of the violence we've spoken about here is the kind of uh, ongoing feud versus um, what was stoked from outside, what was, uh, you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, do you want to? Um, I, I mean, I think that I'm a big believer in fudge, you know, in just, uh, even with, Brexit, just, just, just that, you know, the more and more they disagree, the more and more they just kick the can down the road to see, let's disagree in June, or let's disagree in the fall, or let's disagree next year. In the meantime, we'll just carry on. And, and I think that language is a great help sometimes, where you just say, let's not argue for the moment and see if there's a possibility we might agree sometime in the future. And, and I think the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland, even though I would have imposed... Um, I would have imposed from Britain, and, and I think Britain bears a big responsibility in not imposing, but I can see why they didn't. The Catholic and Protestant children must go to school together, and, and they must go to school together, and just they must go to school together, but they're still not going to school together. You can go through your life in Northern Ireland if you're Catholic or Protestant without ever meeting, you know, in, in, in any serious way, a, a, a person of the other community. But, but, this, but a fudged language, a language of, of agreement, the constant uh, arising from John Hume just saying there is no such thing as territory, there are only people. And you do not make peace with your friends, you make peace with your enemies. And then the Good Friday Agreement saying this wonderful, just two words, this two words that really could make you cry if you thought about them enough, that you could be, that in, which is the problem Brexit is facing in Northern Ireland, which is that anyone born in Northern Ireland at the moment can be Irish or British. And then the, listen for the next two words, or both. Mm -hmm meaning they can have an Irish passport and a British passport. And they are both, just added in, somebody just thinking up, or both. Or both. <laughs> and meaning, of course, a Presbyterian farmer who's never been south of the border can become an Irish citizen in order to get European citizen. Anyway, but, but, I, um, but, but I don't, but, but in the situation, for example, I mean, this doesn't 
cover everything. It, it certainly doesn't cover what's happening in Gaza at the moment. Um, but one of the things that, that, that does seem to me to matter about, about what's happening in Gaza at the moment is the idea of witness, the idea of, of there not being enough outsiders there to talk about it, report on it, be on the radio about it, just watch it. So that we're, we're watching every, every Friday now these killings. We're not watching them, we're hearing about them. And just, it just seems 15 today I read. Oh, when did that become 15? And... Um, I'm not finding, you know, that, that there are large numbers of TV crews or the radio. I'm not hearing about it. It's as though it's sort of natural and normal. And so that um, at, at a certain point, as I pointed out just about Ireland, and it's happened in Spain, and, and it's happened in many other countries, that the violence just exhausts itself. It moves on to another place. Mm-hmm. It is as though the gods, in their great gaze, decide to move from Bosnia to, to some other country that at some point this will have to be plastered over. And um, I think our, our job is to think, well, the sooner the better, perhaps, and the more pressure we put on. But as writers, I think the job is to say, well, actually, why don't we just take one story and tell one story? Not that one story is going to save the world, but that if we don't have one story, we're not going to have any way of imagining others in, in, in any decent way. And so that there is a sort of duty and responsibility, even if you're writing a love story in the middle of a war, to say, actually, this mattered to these people then. It matters to you when you're reading. It might matter. So that, but, but it doesn't, I mean, I mean, it isn't as though, this is not hard power. This, this, this is not um, a way of, of, <coughs> of solving the problems you say. It's, it's just a way of being in the world in some sort of responsible way at the moment. Uh, maybe I missed something in your question, but I don't. I don't think that there were no feuds and no long-standing feuds in Sierra Leone. You compare Sierra Leone to the Balkans were, and that's very, very interesting because the intractable problem that produced the savagery and the loss of its borders is there were seven hundred years tribal war. Well, so, you know that's that. When I wrote the Hard Man, I did exactly the opposite. I think that. Um, I think violence is inherent, and I think people look for cover stories for their violence. Right. So, you know, it could be uh, fundamentalist Islam, or it could be, you know, a long-standing feud. But essentially, every time people go to war with each other, they, they require a cover story in order to um, recruit and justify their violence. So, <clears throat> you know, what I did with The Hard Man is I actually stripped it all away I didn't say at any point in the book who was, um, who was, who was uh, um, a Serb and who was a Croat, right? I looked at it all on the individual basis of people's choices. And that's what I think does happen in war. You can... Um, I also don't think these are beliefs. I think things are norms, right? We had a long discussion with a friend of mine about going back to, to Starbucks, you know, and he was saying, well, you know, white people in America are afraid of black people. And I said, really? Because you don't look very afraid. I mean, you look utterly empowered, frankly, and bold. Um, and he, you know, he kept saying, there's fear, fear, fear. And I kept saying, no, I really don't believe for a moment that white people are afraid of black people. Now, white people might say they're afraid of black people because they require a cover story for the way in which they're treating black people. And before they were afraid, they said that black people were inferior. There was always a cover story for it. But that isn't a norm and a belief are two different things, 
Right. And so when you get a society which has become entrenched on opposite sides, are people really holding on to beliefs? Are they simply enacting norms which then allow other kinds of behaviour to, be, uh, to, to, to become acceptable? That's what I think is really happening. I mean, in Sierra Leone, there wasn't a feud. Um, and that was a very different... That was a very different thing from the former Yugoslavia. But in taking away the macro politics, the explanations that we got in the newspapers, which were all about, well, this long-standing history and this and this and this. And actually, as Com just said, looking at very individual stories at a microscopic level, who does what and how do they then justify it to themselves? Mm. And I think that's what storytellers do. One of the most uh, powerful moments in the memoir is when her... Her father gives a speech at his the, the boarding school. He was one of the only he was the only child I think in his family that went to school. He goes to, yeah. a, to that kind of school. to that kind of elite <laughs> boarding school, and um, he goes back there to give a speech. and He talks entirely about nonviolence and rejects the politics of violence. Um, and the, the in Siak Stevens' government, his head of security had also gone to that school, mm. and he took that speech as a direct affront. Mm. Um, and so, you know, he, it, he made it impossible to hide behind the norm uh, of that, that political violence had become a necessity at mm. that point. Um, there's a question right here. Yes. I wonder... Hmm. You know, and, and just uh, this continued need for, for having a reason to say, you know, to question Congress about something, and hmm. uh, they get through lunch, they say, well, the reason for that is, you know, <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you serious? <laughs> hmm. Hmm. But, but I, I've seen the, the point that people don't remember anything more than hmm. five minutes in this country. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I had a kid come up and he said, you know that, that place that they shot, that kids got all shot up in, in Florida? I said, you mean Parkland High School? Was that what the name was? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's anonymous. It's, who's, you know, I mean, I think if you're a novelist, the idea of having a character who presses that button and the, the, how ordinary the day might go, that could go to a baseball game, but how somehow or other something would linger in the self. It just reminded me that um, I was talking about Alan Black and the Kingsville Massacre. The people who did that are still alive and they've never been brought to justice. Um, and, and they probably live in the same area. He has probably passed them on the street. Now, if you're, again, if you're a novelist, that idea of someone's father, someone who goes out to check that the dog, you know, if the dog is barking, bring the dog in, put, puts the garbage out at night. That man, in his 70s now, um, did that. Mm-hmm. He had a mask on. And he probably even just did that one shooting because often things worked like that. Maybe he did more, but some, some of them just did one. And 40 years later, he has told no one. Two people know he did it. One of them is dying. What, 
you know, you'd need Alice Munro to come in here, you know, <laughs> to say, uh, like, like how, how, how does the conscience work with the drone pusher, with the summon 40 years later? How does memory work? How does ordinary experience actually compensate or cover? How do the two things work against each other? So I, so I, so I think, again, it's a subject that we could perhaps... Uh, Anonymity, but I think it's accountability, really. If you think you're going to get away with something, or if you think the thing you do is justified, um, you know, I, I, I feel fairly certain that that 70 year old taking. The reason he hasn't told anybody is he doesn't want to be held accountable. Um, you know, that, that a lot of people went to some effort to kill my father. And it was so sort of extraordinary, really, to uncover it and confront them and realise how ordinary a conspiracy it was, really. You know, it wasn't clever. It was just the president let his will be known and everyone started to act upon it. And I, my sister was never really, at the beginning, convinced that this was a good idea to go after these guys. Yeah, reasonably so. Um, and, uh, you know, and then when she became more... She read the book and when it was finished and, you know, she, she said that, the mo- that for her the most satisfying thing... She said to me, God, you kill somebody. And then 30 years later, the phone rings and it's their daughter. <laughs> and, you know, and I thought that, you know, that it was the accountability that was the problem for them. It wasn't the killing it was being held accountable for it. So, I, you know, I think the guy with the, who presses the button on the drone, unless he was, unless the whole, you know, unless he was made to see that in a different way as an unjustified killing, an unjustifiable killing, but whilst I think he still sees it as justified or whilst he has that anonymity of just pressing the button and not being directly connected with it, I think he probably goes about his days in a fairly regular manner, actually. Actually, there's been some very good reporting about people that are operating out of those sheds in Nevada that are doing drone strikes in Afghanistan, and they do develop, some of them, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Some of them. Some of them, yeah. And some of them don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is your big... Yeah. <laughs> your contribution, too. There's, there, there's a very... A lot of them hit the buttons at one time, and they don't know who did it. Oh, mm. like the firing squad. Yeah. Mm. There's a very good book by Edwidge Donica called The Dewbreaker, um, which is about Haitian torturers under the Papa Doc Duvalier regime. And a woman finds, um, runs into the torturer who tortured her father on the street in Brooklyn. He's the man 70. She recognizes him immediately, even though he was also wearing a mask. It's, it's a s- smell and a, and a body. Um, and she unfolds that over the story of lives. Um, it's a tremendous book. Um, but these these are also... Incredible books, and they, also, they, they expand out the question of violence and how it is perpetuated and who does it and what it does to us um, in, in, in ways that I think change the question from um, uh, are we necessarily bad to um, what are we actually like? What does it feel like to, to be alive? Um, so, Kalam Tabin, uh, Aminata Forna, it's been a pleasure. Um, they will be signing books outside, I believe. Um, you've been a terrific audience. Thank you for listening, um, and thank you to Penn. Thank you. That was lovely. I enjoyed that a great deal.